Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm assuming people at your work will be wearing red and white tomorrow. This is first time in 36 years Canada will be playing a World Cup soccer game. Somebody who knows a little bit about the international game, he's a Hamilton guy. Uh, he was also a member of Canada's national team for a long time, played for Toronto FC, did a bunch of other things, a long career, now the coach of Concordia University. His name is Greg Sutton. He joins us now. Greg, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. How are you, man? I am terrific. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Are you, are you as a guy who played on that team, are you able to look at this as a fan of what's happening, or is it different when you've been there and you see things differently? Uh, I'm a fan. I feel like I'm, I'm getting ready for a good night's sleep to try and be prepared as best I can for tomorrow. So feel even a part of this group still. Like it's uh, it's exciting. I mean, this is like as you, as you just said, there 36 years in the making. So um, you know, a lot of nervous energy. Like uh, I assume all the guys are going to be having right now. Going to be tough to sleep tonight. Uh, it's one of the biggest challenges you face when you're when you're a professional player and you've got a big game on the horizon like these guys have, which is basically probably their biggest game of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, but it's exciting, and and I think that's uh, that's just going to add to you know the entertainment value for for all us Canadians now watching this game. You were a goalie. You were a great goalie. But right now, you are tied for the all-time lead in goal scoring for Canada at the World Cup, <laughs> along with everyone else in Canada right now. You and I and everyone are tied. They have Canada's never scored a goal. Does that end tomorrow? Uh, I hope so. I think that's one of the monkeys they want to get off their back. Um, you know, it, it, listen. I think one of the things that coming into this World Cup, everybody is is excited about the opportunity to, to play on the world stage. Um, and for, and for Canada as as fans, I think we're all hopeful that you know they're going to show uh, have a good showing. Um, but I think deep down in, in in this group, I think this team is really optimistic about their chances of advancing. As I, as am I. Uh, and so I, I do believe they will score a few goals in this World Cup. Um, hopefully it, it comes tomorrow. I think this is a team that um, they're going up against, obviously, a very formidable opponent, but a team that I think that they can use their speed against them um, with a, a, a back line in Belgium that is not the fleet of foot as, as they have been in the past, and so maybe a little bit more of a, an opportunity for Canada to catch them on, on what we expect is going to be some counterattacking play. Um, because that's what Canada possesses. Is they possess an incredible amount of speed, and, and, and no more, no one more faster than Alfonso Davies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's going to be an opportunity for for Canada to get out and run against this team. Um, but it will be nice if they can find that that back of the net in that first goal, because I think that will that will help them just kind of alleviate some of the pressure. Everybody, I heard so many times today, when Saudi Arabia beat Argentina today, which, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe the biggest upset in World Cup history, certainly in the discussion for, for that. But when, yeah. when that happened today, I saw all kinds of people on social media, people talking about it, saying, look, it's possible. I know Belgium is, what, number two in the world, but it's possible. Realistically, though, re- what, is, what is a realistic expectation for tomorrow's game for Canada? Uh, realistically, it's going to be a challenge. I think that, you know, the first, you know, fact of the matter is is that you've got 26 guys who've never played in a World Cup before going up against the 26-man roster of Belgium, who I haven't exactly looked through thoroughly to understand who has been, hasn't been in the World Cup yet before. I expect probably 75, if not more, of their players have been involved in a World Cup. So 
you know, there's going to be that, that factor of just getting into the game for Canada. So that, that'll be a challenge. So I think the first 15 minutes is going to be crucial for this, this team and, and their success. If they're going to have some tomorrow to get through that kind of that, just that, you know, that, 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 that kind of unknown, if you will, um, you know, to make sure they can try and get through it unscathed. If they can get through that first 15 minutes, then I think the game will settle into a way that they'll understand how they can try and get at this Belgian team. And and I honestly believe that if there is some momentum going forward early on in this game, that I think it'll be a much easier hill for them to climb. Um, but if they give up an early goal, that is become that becomes just the, the, the you know uh, at moments in, in World Cup uh, games an unsurmountable hill to climb when you when you get get behind early. Even though uh, we saw Argentina uh, struggle to keep that lead today. I think most times than not, if you give up an early goal, it's a challenge. So, uh, long story short, I think that there's a chance. Um, if you're going to be the odds maker, well, I would say there's probably a, you know, let's hope maybe like a twenty percent chance that Canada can get get a win tomorrow. Thirty percent, forty percent chance they can get a draw. That would be my hope. You, you've look. You've never played in a World Cup, but you've played in a lot of big games. When you go in as the underdog. In a case like this, because Canada is clear, I mean, regardless of what people want to make out, and again, Saudi Arabia is like the beacon of hope now for everybody, but I I don't know that that's realistic. Do you go into a game like this hoping for a win and going for it, or do you try and dip your toe into it a little bit and say, "Let's, let's play cautiously and try and get a point out of this and feel good about going into our next game? Yeah, I mean, I think that with this group, there is, there's a lot to be hopeful about. I mean, one of the things that everybody's talked about Canada and how successful this team has been, has been all the, has really been emphasized on the offensive side of the ball. Um, but let's not forget that Canada was the best team defensively in CONCACAF and qualifying as far as conceding goals. You know, they, they conceded the less. Um, and so that I think is something that they can, you know, they can stand up and be proud of. of. And, and I think that is going to be such an important obviously part of this world cup is defensively if they can be strong they're going to get their opportunities going offensively there's just no doubt about it whether it's through the run of play or through set pieces which is also going to be a huge part of this this world cup for for canada and for most teams but especially for canada i think if they can defensive defend in the right way early on in most of these games and keep that keep that 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 scoreboard to zero um for their opponents i think it's going to give them ample opportunities to, to go ahead and 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 get on top of teams. So I think, you know, the offensive power that this team possesses is clearly there, but I also think that people should not be, shouldn't, shouldn't take this team lightly defensively. I think they're, they're a formidable opponent defensively as well. I've mentioned Saudi Arabia like five times, and, but, but I, I mean, I wonder if Canada almost wishes they hadn't done what they did today because this has put every good team on high alert now that you can't sleep on anybody here. It might have been no, nice no. to not have that, no. so you could be the one that sneaks up. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but I do think uh, Belgium and Roberto Martinez, the coach for Belgium, has an ample amount of respect for this Canadian side. And so I, I don't, you know, I think maybe, you know, a year ago you would have said if Canada got in the World Cup, they would be a team that would be could come up and surprise people. But I think there's been so much talk about this team uh, internationally now that there's not going to be too many teams that are going to, going to walk into this game and think it's going to be easy against this Canadian side. So 
um, you know, Canada's going to have to be at their best. And I think that's, that's the success of all these teams in the World Cup is that your best players have to be your best players. And there can't be players on this group in the first 11. You know, there can't be guys that are 5 out of 10 of their score for that game. They've got to be 8s and 9s. Um, you know, across the board is meaning you got to have 11 guys that are going to be playing at their best to be successful in this stage because it is the best. Uh, before I let you go, I have to ask you what it is about the water. Well, that's probably a bad choice of words today. You don't need to know what's going on here, but what's going on in Hamilton that every time we have a great team, we have a goalie who's from Hamilton. You for a number of years with Canada's national team, now Milan Borjan, who's from Hamilton. What's, what's the secret here with us producing great soccer goalies? Well, I guess it's the nickname, right? The Steel City. You know, we're 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 hard. We're we're like a wall now. And 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 you know, Milan Doran's been unbelievable for for Team Canada for a number of seasons now, a number of years, and hopefully he'll have that success. But uh, I think it's just that grit and just that you know that uh, that blue collar work rate that you got to be to be a goaltender. You got to have that in you, and and you got to be able to just you know. Um, Take the praise if it ever comes your way, which doesn't come very often for goaltenders, but you've got to be able to block out the noise and, and just move forward, and that's kind of the way I approach my entire career. And um, But, yeah, it's awesome to see another Hamilton, uh, Hamilton boy uh, that was born and, and is tending the net for Canada. That's Greg Sutton, uh, one of the greats. Really appreciate the time today, Greg. Thanks for doing this. Enjoy tomorrow. Get a good sleep. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thanks, appreciate Greg. It. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So a couple days ago, I am online and I see this story about doctors slamming Canada's perverted new law for medical assistance in dying. Now, some of you are are very much in favor of our medical assistance in dying law. That's okay. You're allowed your opinion. It's not, what we're talking about today is not primarily the medical assistance in dying, I don't think, for those who have terminal cancer who are days or weeks away from certain death. We're talking about the expansion of this because Canada now, and I didn't even realize this, Canada now apparently is the number one country in the world for having doctors kill patients at their request, but number one, there's no other country that does it as much as us. In 2021, We had over 10,000 people die by this, which was a massive rise, 32.4% increase from the year before. And the real concern here is not just that this is growing. The concern is why it's growing. The concern is because, A, it seems as though an awful lot of people, now that it doesn't have to be for a present and you know, like an illness that is about to kill you. It doesn't have to be something that is looming if you just have a long-term condition or suffering or whatever, anything. But now we're exp- going about to expand it to have mental health issues. And a lot of people are saying, wait a second, this is, this is ridiculous. How, how, how possibly can we be looking at this situation and say we're resolving our problems when we're just having people with mental health issues, which could potentially be cured, which would then make someone not want to kill themselves do this. Uh, even the Toronto star this week writes, wrote a piece. There was a column in the Toronto star under the headline. Canada is now number one in the world in terms of made. We should think twice before expanding it. 
I want to bring in Trudeau Lemons. He is a professor of the, uh, and the school chair in health law and policy at the University of Toronto, who joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you're more than welcome. I, I was first of all, I was surprised to find out that we were number one in the world in this. But there are parts of this story that become more and more troubling. I think, and I know that you've been someone who has equally been troubled by. I don't know if you were troubled by where it started, but certainly by where it's going. I would say particularly where it's going uh, and how rapidly it has been expanding uh, and how normalized it has become uh, as a means to end suffering of people who are not uh, close to their natural death. So people who otherwise would live, uh, who are now being offered um, medical assistance and dying as as if it's some kind of uh, inherently beneficial practice while we have to realize that it means the end of their ex- people's existence so yes suffering is is radically resolved you no know, people are but people are dead so uh, everything that comes with that is is there as well the, the there was a uh, in this Toronto Star uh, piece this Toronto Star column about it this week there was there are a couple things I want to raise with you because there were a couple things that leapt off the page at me that were striking. One of them, uh, let me just read this two paragraphs. Ontario psychiatrist Dr. John Mahar told a joint Senate House of Commons committee studying made that some of his patients are now refusing treatment to make themselves eligible <clears throat> for MAID. That, that is, okay, so if we're now at the point when it, we've made it so easy that all you have to do is refuse some treatment, that seems to be losing the point of the whole thing is it not we're aren't we supposed to be helping you and then if this is if all else fails and you are just about to die and the suffering is too great you have this option as opposed to saying well this is just another option yeah so dr mayor's statement obviously reflects the deep uh, uh, anguish that people particularly working in the mental health field Field, but also people who are dealing as physicians on a daily basis with people who are living with uh, disabilities, um, who are struggling with poverty, with um, <clears throat> with suffering associated with uh, intersections between poverty and 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 medical conditions. So the anguish that they feel that people are now uh, able and actually indirectly, you know, send the message by by the fact that we adopted this law that uh, ending their suffering through medical assistance and dying is an appropriate thing to do. And so, um, uh, and and actually also that we are indeed in our laws even have uh, no explicit requirement which exists in the, in the very few countries that actually have a, have a, a liberal uh, medical assistance in dying or euthanasia regime as we have, so for example, Belgium and Netherlands. So, so in these other countries, at least uh, physicians have to agree that there are no other op- non-medical options left to address uh, their suffering. And we don't have that in the law. And uh, you could say, well, that's people's choice, so that will be often the response. Yeah, people are suffering, so they should be able to choose. Uh, and I, I listened to the podcast also that was... Um, uh, added to the uh, Toronto Star article, um, and Minister Lametti makes constantly references to how oh, people are suffering. People are suffering. We they need made. They need access to made. But it 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 ignores the very complex context in which people 
have a, have a desire to die. The very complex medical social context in which they are thinking about ending their life because they don't see any solution to suffering that they're confronted with. So I, I, I'm actually, I, I've listened to the podcast, I read the Toronto Star article, but particularly listening to the podcast and hearing the justification of, uh, of Minister Lametti, uh, where he defends the law and, and constantly emphasizes the need for access to aid rather than the need to protect against premature death, I find very, uh, very uh, troubling and very upsetting. And so I, I, I'm not a practicing physician, but I already feel, so I feel the moral anguish hearing that and hearing that emphasis and seeing the stories coming out. So imagine if you're a doctor and you're confronted with a patient and you know that there are treatments out there, but the patient refuses them for whatever reason of despair or anxiety that they have about the treatment. Uh, but they they insist that they want to have medical assistance and die. So I think this is a very troubling, a very troubling development. Uh, it, it's a, it's a perversion of what originally was intended with with um, with the medical assistance in dying law, which um, uh, you know we, as you know we we had to introduce because the Supreme Court declared that there had to be in some circumstances, access to this, you know. Mm. But, but I mean, what, with what you're saying, um, there are many people, I, I understand that this is complicated, but there are many, many people who suffer from depression who with treatment can become better. Not all, I understand there are some cases that are very unique, but there are many people who, if they were suffering from depression with medicine, with other things, could be better. And if those people who are in the pit of depression who may want to end their life were given the treatment, they may not any longer want to end their life yet. Rather than saying what we have to do is bolster those treatments to help people get out of that despair, we're saying let's expand the opportunity to kill yourself while you're in that despair. That seems just totally wrong. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a serious uh, problem. I mean, we, we will introduce it by March 23, and people are asking for a pause. So this was also part of the article, and the journalist actually uh, uh, appropriately asked, Altia Ray appropriately asked David Lametti, Minister Lametti, so why are we not pausing this and looking at increasing our services first? And he keeps saying, oh, we... we, we we need to have to give access because people are suffering, and and at the same time, yes, we, we can we can improve uh, access to care over time. I think it's it's putting the cart before the horse. You know, we we uh, it ignores the fact that um, offering this this option out actually undermines our ability to provide the appropriate care, and particularly in the context of mental health, it really undermines. Also, the uh, the resilience that people may feel when when they know that there are options out there and uh, and uh, and uh, and they and they um, and they, there is no quick solution. I mean, many instances of suffering. It, yes, it it takes time. Uh, it takes time to find uh, to find an appropriate solution. But we 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 need to create the space to en to enable that that solution and, and and not start offering medical assistance in dying even when treatment options are available. So you're, you mentioned the issue of, of depression. Uh, um, uh, I would say that's a, that's a key example, but, but there are other situations as well. And I think about 
a person who has a, a catastrophic uh, accident and it becomes paraplegic, uh, where, um, you know, the, being faced with that often leads to depression, leads to mental health issues. But over time, uh, the statistics show that, you know, people do get better. The, you, you're, you're saying some people will get better, people suffer from depression. The majority of people actually will get better with good care. Uh, we simply, we can't even say who will not get better. Let's say generally with good care, with good options, people get better. And that's the message that we should emphasize. And that's the message that we, we should be sending patients and, and not this idea that there is a, is a quick solution for medical system dying um, without, without um, you know, without, uh, uh, actually even without providing the services that, 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 that are that are currently lacking in our system. We have heard in recent months an example, uh, Global News I know reported this first, an example of a, of a veteran who uh, someone just out of the blue said you might want to consider medical assistance in dying. Um, the, the, the Toronto Star piece starts with an example of a 55-year-old who couldn't find affordable housing and he was thinking he was going to become homeless, so he applied for medical assistance in dying, and he found a doctor who was willing to sign off on that one. It, it seems as though, again, um, the idea that this is, we've broadened it so much that rather than trying to solve the problems, it seems like the easy way here is, well, if things are too hard, Here's an option for you, as opposed to saying, listen, our, our job as a society is to try to make things better and make it so it's not so hard. And yes, it's not always going to be easy, but th th this just seems like, I hate to, to be so glib, but it seems like we're offering what even the government is now saying, hey, it's your easy way out. Yes. Yeah, so and I would say that, so Justice Minister Lametti explicitly states in the article and in the podcast that, um, uh, I mean, he equates it with, uh, we... People, people can commit suicide. So for people who have trouble having access to suicide because they because they are physically incapable, or he even mentioned maybe you know uh, mental inhibit in in a mental hindrance in 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 getting to uh, ending your life by suicide should be should, so. So he's suggesting it as it as if the state offers them a way out. Because, for those people who are not able to do it themselves. A compassionate, well, a compassionate thing the state is doing a, a, by killing you. I, I would call it compassionate, state-supported, state-funded, a medical system-provided suicide. Well, that was not what the Supreme Court was saying in the Carter decision, but we're at the system now where we're basically saying, um, you know, the state and the medical system are there to... Um, to offer uh, ending of life of a, as a as a form of therapy for life's life suffering, and that's really really troubling. That's really uh, I think reckless. Um, and the problem is also that in the Canadian system again, we don't even require that uh, if treatment options are available, that doctors actually have to insist that these treatment options are being tried first. And the second thing, and I mean, you mentioned there. Uh, the fact that uh, the, the case of the veteran who was offered uh, medical assistance in dying. Uh, deeply troubling is also that the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers, who has been funded by the government to organize uh, educational sessions for physicians and nurses um, with respect to how to provide, how to assess a request for medical assistance in dying and how to provide it, uh, explicitly states that as part of an informed consent procedure, uh, made assessors and providers or physicians basically uh, should 
put made on the table, should should put ending of life on the table for ed- any person who might qualify. Now, if you look at how broad the, quali- the, 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 the access criteria are now, so it will include as of March 23, uh, people suffering from mental illness. Imagine what that concretely means. It means that a person who suffers from severe depression or schizophrenia and and or another mental condition or PTSD goes to see a, a consultant because they suffer and they and and they arguably could could be perceived to suffer intolerably and they really struggle with it and they go and see a therapist and the therapist starts talking about about what they have as treatment options and they would say well we can have psychotherapy we can have cognitive behavioral therapy we can we have medication and we have ending your life i would say that's from a medical perspective and a, and a, not, not just a societal perspective in general but also from a, from a medical perspective in you know inconceivable i mean it's 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 stunning that we as a as a society would 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 normalize that and and that the government basically funds an organization that is putting that on the table and that the colleges are, uh, the, the 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 college of physicians and surgeons uh, is currently also designing a new um, a new policy on on made and a new policy on providing access, which seems and I I say here seems because there is some interpretation possible, but which seems to suggest that if a physician is confronted with a request for made, even when when the physician thinks that this patient should not qualify because there are so many other treatment options left. That they have a would have an obligation to make sure that the that the patient get get gets referred to a uh, to a physician who is willing to end their lives. Which is uh, which, I, if you think yeah. about that for a second, so a physician comes upon someone on the sidewalk who's just had a heart attack, mm-hmm. and the person is lying there needing CPR, but the physician believes you know this person probably is old or maybe they're disabled. They probably won't have a good quality of life. I am therefore making a decision that I'm not going to give you CPR because the physician, like it, the, the whole, the thinking of it, it's just, it's bizarre thinking. And, and to go back to your point, I just want to throw this because Justice Minister David Lametti, and you've talked about this a couple times, how he has suggested, well, one of the things is some people can't kill themselves for whatever reason. So we have to offer them that in the event that they can't. Well, what about anything else? So if you can't kill yourself because you're not able to for some reason. What if you are a drug addict and you can't get drugs? Should we be then giving you free drugs? Or if you're an alcoholic, should we be, we can't get it. I'm, I'm, I'm disabled. I'm a quadriplegic. I can't get out of the house, but I'm an alcoholic. You have to provide me. We would never do that because we would say that would be harming you. And yet here killing, telling you, well, physician assisted suicide, that would be the ultimate harm. But we say that's a good idea. I don't. I just don't get it. Yeah. So um, I mean, I would say the the example of um, of drugs and alcohol is maybe not the best one because okay. I I think you can you can certainly make an argument that, for example, when we when we are faced, this is also the interesting contradiction to our system now. So when when we're faced with with the opioid crisis and with serious problems of uh, of unsafe drugs. And I'm sure, and I hope that Minister Lametti would agree with me, that we then have to make sure that uh, people are are uh, appropriately provided access to care, which may include actually safe supply of um, 
of of drugs to save their lives because the the focus clearly in the opioid crisis also to save people's lives now if a person has a serious addiction and now goes to a physician and says well i have a serious addiction problem that i want to have made we would say well no no the focus should no longer be on saving their lives because they want to die so let's provide medical assistance and dying so there is i would say there is an inherent contradiction in how we have a, you know, an appropriate uh, emphasis on we need to save lives. The opioid crisis is deeply problematic. We need to save people. And we're organizing a system of medical assistance and dying, which is uh, increasingly offering that to people who ask for it explicitly. They stated in interviews, uh, they state that they actually would prefer to live, but they can't cope anymore because they have... Uh, uh, significant disability, live in poverty, don't have access to the services they need. I think it's 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 deeply immoral. It's deeply troubling, um, and you know, I I, I anyway, I, as you, as you can as you can hear, I'm I'm morally troubled because I just listened also to the podcast, and when I mm. when I hear the arguments about oh we shouldn't pause the expansion of MAID because people are suffering. And, and people need access to it. Uh, yes, we have to address social services, but in the meantime, we have to provide MAID. It ignores so fundamentally the, 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 the social context in which this all happens. Just, so, just before uh, I yeah. let you go, uh, one more thing. Um, does this not inevitably lead to, th- th- there are still two groups of people that are not eligible for this, um, but does it not lead to the inevitable conclusion that at some point, wh- why should a 12-year-old child who is dying from cancer or has depression, severe depression, why should they be forced to suffer if an adult doesn't? It seems to me the inevitable next step would be to allow children to have this, which would be unbelievably troubling. But beyond that, what about somebody who is severely disabled, who's unable to give voice to their opinions, so their caregiver is then the one who has to decide for them. Because if I've, if I've got a severe disability, I may, in the government's eyes, not want to live with this, but I can't tell you that, so the person who's responsible for me might make... And now, we're, now we have legitimately moved into euthanasia, which I don't think is that far a step from where we are now. No, but just to clarify, euthanasia is actually what we're providing. I mean, people don't like the term in Canada because we introduced medical assistance and dying, but sure, we're okay. doing exactly the same what Belgium and Netherlands is doing, which is, but but you're 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 probably suggesting where we would go to involuntary. In, that's or, or, that's or, what or I mean. Yes, that's yes. what I mean. And so, we don't seem like we're so that far away. I, I, I would say it's not on the table. For example, now with the parliamentary commission, which is looking into this, but. Uh, I, I hear you. I mean, the argument that is being put forward again in the, in the interview and in the podcast is, is people are suffering. There is, needs to be a solution and made as a solution. Well, if we say that about indeed about people who, who are uh, able to consent, uh, why wouldn't it be the case then for people who are, are, are not in a position to really consent? So um, will it go to children, 12-year-old again? I don't think this is on the table yet, but we're talking for sure already in the committee. But uh, mental health, mental, sorry to interrupt, but mental health five years ago was not on the table. In fact, yeah, we were, yeah, to, yeah, we yeah, were yeah, told yeah. specifically that would never happen yeah. Yeah, and so, within five years. 
yeah so uh, mature miners i think is is being is uh, i fear will be pushed by the parliamentary commission as a as a thing that uh, should be legalized because people will say well there is an extension so it may not be a 12 year old but uh, in the interview, David, Justice Minister Lametti was talking about the Quebec Civil Code, which allows treatment decisions as of 14 years old. He wasn't saying he thought that it had to be available, the mate had to be available as of 14 years old, but, but he raised at least the possibility that this is to be debated. So mm. you can see a situation where we will have 16, 17-year-old uh, 18 year old and I would say even young adults you know uh, in my view is troubling where they will suffer from um, uh, you know depression uh, anxiety uh, they're you know they're, they're, they're psychologically still developing uh, they think there is no future for them and they will apply for medical assistance and dying so how will we, will we deal with that as a society mm. I fear that we will that it will take some really dramatic cases that are close to home of some of our decision makers where they see family members young family members um, uh, having their life ended in that system before there is a real wake-up call and uh, i mean i hope i hope we can we can we wake up earlier but i i fear when i hear the the strong emphasis on oh there is suffering that has to be solved absolutely now by medical assistance and dying even while we know that there are long wait times for mental health services, there are months, years of wait times for for various specialized services, including mental health services. We we have uh, to we have to run. Unfortunately, I I will. I'm not a betting man. I do, I don't bet on anything. But I would almost bet five dollars right now. Sadly, that um, we will see a 10 or 12 year old be given the right to do this within a few years. I just, the, the way it's been going with the rapid expansion, it, to me, it seems inevitable, but I hope you're right, not me. Uh, Trudeau Lemons uh, from the University of Toronto, the professor and school chair in health law and policy. Thank you so much for this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me over and thanks for talking about this uh, very difficult subject. It is, uh, it is a difficult subject. Thank you uh, for that. It's, um, I, I will take a bet with almost anybody on this one and I hope I'm wrong. But if you consider that five years ago, medical assistance in dying was only ever going to be for those who were facing imminent death because of some disease that was terminal. That was it. That was all. That was the only thing it was ever going to be allowed for. There would be no more except for that because we wanted to prevent their suffering. And within five years, six years, we're now going to be where if you have mental health issues and people who have homelessness as a problem or other things that you are now able to get it. it. We will, I hate to do it. We will be talking about kids being allowed to make this decision soon. I, unfortunately, I, I, you know, you can disagree. We'll see. That's my, that's my prediction. M- make a note of it on November 22, 2022, that we're within five years. We'll have 12 year olds, 10 year olds making decisions, which is immoral and horrendous and tragic, but what's the, what is the reason to think that wouldn't happen based on where we've been? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're interested in the JFK assassination and you haven't seen Oliver Stone's movie, it's at least a thinker. Uh, today is November 22. That means it is the anniversary, the 59th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 
And 59 years seems like an awful long time to still be keeping things secret. You would think that anyone... Okay, so so the official view is that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only guy who was involved in any way. Most people don't believe that. Some do. Most people believe somebody else may have been involved in some other capacity. But if there was anyone else, surely they would be gone by now or very close to gone by now. So what are we still keeping? What is the American government? Why, why are there still secrets? Why not just dump everything out to the public and... Let us see it all at this point. Well, I want to bring in someone who is, um, every time I go on Facebook, he is posting stuff. He is a JFK assassination aficionado. He studies it. He is, he knows as much about it as anybody I know. His name is Randy O, and he joins us now. Randy, how are you today? Good, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I love having you on to talk about, I mean, it's, you know, it's a bleak, grim topic always when you're talking about assassination, but it does seem like 59 years into this thing, we've reached the point where surely everything can just be dumped out into the public and let us sort through it, doesn't it? Yeah, you'd think so, but you've got to keep in mind, too, that the original investigation, they had hoped to keep some of this stuff secret for 75 years, so thanks to Oliver Stone and his movie which caused a firestorm about documents still being held and, and kept secret. Uh, thanks to him, um, that movie prompted uh, the United States government to start releasing some of this stuff, and it's taken uh, over 25 years since then. This stuff should have been out uh, a couple of years ago, but the president of the United States at the time, Donald Trump, and, by the way, the current president, Joe Biden, have uh, successively uh, decided to hold back at least uh, you know a fair amount of the documents that are still sealed. So we're waiting for about three more weeks before I think the final dump of documents is about to happen. So you believe that? Um, it's tough to say um, because as you alluded to, uh, like why keep some of this stuff secret? Well, they say on the grounds of national security is one reason. And the reason, like, Trump and Biden haven't released all the stuff is because the uh, organizations that generated the original documents have, have said, please don't release this stuff. There's stuff we still want to keep, keep secret on the grounds of national security or protecting somebody's privacy, that sort of reason. Uh, but a lot of that stuff now, I think, is probably way past time for that stuff to be released. Well, okay, so I, I suppose that potentially, let's say the CIA or the FBI or something could have operational information in there. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but I mean, if we're just talking about names of somebody, surely, as I say, they're either dead by now or not causing anyone any more problems. They're probably long gone. They're not certainly working as a spy or an operative. Any like it? Just what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but you touched on something there when you mentioned uh, you know operational stuff. Uh, one of the reasons that some of these things were kept secret was because of Lee Harvey Oswald's mysterious trips. One of the trips he took about six weeks before the assassination was down to Mexico City, where he ran into uh, uh, Cubans and uh, Russians. He went into the uh, Russian embassy down there in Mexico City. And here's, here's the reason why a lot of this stuff was kept secret by the CIA, was because they didn't want the world to know that they had people connected to the Mexican government um, who okayed CIA access into the Russian embassy, so that they could plant eavesdropping devices and bugs on some of the phones and wiretaps inside the embassy there, so they could hear what was going on inside the embassy. So they didn't want that that to be known. It may not necessarily have had anything to do with the assassination, but that's one of the reasons why. And just because Lee Harvey Oswald happened to walk into that hornet's nest of spies and stuff like that, 
that stuff is still kept secret. But or had I, for a while. But but again, so we're fifty nine years into this. Even let's say that even the most outrageous stuff was there that during the that the American government in the sixties was doing because I mean it was the Cold War stuff was happening. We know that, but. Even if the most outrageous thing was in there that, you know, the CIA had decided they were going to try and assassinate Fidel Castro, which has always been suggested in 2022, what difference does that make now? Would it still have political consequences? I can't imagine how it would. Yeah, I don't. I don't really think it would either. Um, but it, for histor- for history's sake, and for historical sake, and and for the 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 hope that there are lessons to be learned from keeping stuff like this secret, um, those are the reasons why I think that uh, you know it, it's essential to to continue to study this. It's not you know for everybody, obviously, but I think if, if you're interested in 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 justice and if you're interested in the truth, then I think uh, it, it's one of those things where yeah, we should learn this stuff. We should learn it now because. You know, it has it has been fifty nine years. I don't think anybody's going to be politically or emotionally damaged by it now after all these years. I mean, Joe Biden is old enough that maybe his name was in the documents, but <laughs> I doubt it. I, I just I look at this thing and I think, okay, even at this point, e- e- even if we found something out in three weeks, if they do release them or if they come up with some other reason why not to, but even if there was something there that was literally or figuratively the smoking gun. <laughs> Does it really make a difference at this point? Um, well, like I said, I think for history's sake and for knowing, you know, the truth about what happened. Um, but but to get to your point about uh, smoking guns and things like that, I don't think there's going to be a smoking gun in these documents that are left. I really don't because I really think it's naive to think that somebody's going to write down on a piece of paper what actually happened. Yeah, Bob from the CIA was the guy on the grassy knoll. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> who's going to write that down on a piece of paper and say, "Well, here's the truth. Leo, let's just keep it secret for a while and see what happens." You know? Yeah, and, and even if that, that was in a document somewhere, that document would have been gotten rid of long before now. If there was one document that said that, that would have been gone. We, we, that, that's never going to exist. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it would have been destroyed accidentally in a photocopy machine or something, like some documents have been destroyed. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I don't even know. I know you are fascinated by this. I know there are people who certainly are. A, a friend of mine, the cartoonist for the Hamilton Spectator, Graham Mackay, was just down in Dallas a few weeks ago. I was chatting with him, and he said, the Dealey Plaza, it's it's like a game of Frogger, people running across the street to take pictures. Like, it's still a busy place with tourists. There's still a great deal of interest. But I don't know that if, even if there was something that resolved this, that anybody does anything with it other than saying, oh, well, there we go. Okay, that, that sorts that out. No one's going to be charged. No one from the CIA or FBI, even if it was turning out that they were involved, nothing's going to happen to anybody at this point. I can't imagine and it's interesting you mentioned Frogger because um, there's uh, been a move around uh, Dallas lately to uh, redesign Dealey Plaza and to turn the actual street into a pedestrian walkway so you won't have to play Frogger and dodge cars that are going down when you want to stand at the spot where John F. Kennedy was killed 59 years ago. Um, and that's kind of debatable, too, because I was there on the 30th anniversary when it was declared a national landmark, and the whole plaza was supposed to be maintained uh, to the way it was back in 63. So with some of the architectural drawings that I've seen and, and renderings that I've seen, um, it would change substantially the way that the place looked. Uh, mind you, a lot of the, the original stuff would still be there, but it, w- but it would substantially change the way that it looked uh, back in 1963. And, and I mean, the reason people go down there, I think one reason, um, A, is uh, they, you know, it's, it's, connect- it's a connection to the past, 
Um, I, I think James Cameron said it best in, in Titanic in, in one of the commentaries for his movie. He says, um, once you go to a place where, where uh, a historical tragedy has taken place uh, and you've been there, it's, it's like you become a part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think people want to be a part of it and still want to be a part of it and remember it. Just before we go, Randy, because we're way out of time here, um, if we ever did absolutely for certain learn the truth, would that be a disappointment? Because it seems as though even though people want, say they want to know, there is an, there's an industry, there's a fascination, there's something fun and, and, you know, it's an assassination and a real life assassination. I don't know if fun is the right word, but about the search rather than the actual resolution. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, because people have asked me that and said, do you think, you know, we'll ever find out the truth? And I said, or, you know, why do you bother if you're never going to find out who did it? And I compare it to a journey. Um, you know, sometimes you know the journey itself is far more interesting than the actual destination because I've got to meet Lee Harvey Oswald's widow. I've met KGB agents, FBI agents, Secret Service agents, talked to witnesses and things like that. People that I never—I mean—they literally jump out of the history book at me. And you know, and, and to know that these people were real people, and and this affected them in ways that uh, it really is hard to comprehend how how emotionally involved and impacted a lot of people were by this. Absolutely. We tried, not that you were our second choice, but we did try to get Clint Hill on the show today. Oh. Uh, Clint Hill was the Secret Service agent who jumped on the back of the Kennedy limo. He's just written a new book, and uh, we tried to get him on, but uh, he was uh, not available today. We tried months ago, um, mm-hmm. down the road. But, uh, Randy, you are... You are 1A to the Secret Service agent who was on the limo that day. Uh, Randy, Randy Owen, uh, listen, always love having you on here. Thanks for talking about this today. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the time. Uh, November 22, it always is a day that uh, I used to have a joke with, uh, with a guy at work. We'd, um, one of us would, at The Spectator, always make a reference to JFK in our piece that day. Um, I'm on holidays from The Spec this week, so I never got that chance, but we're talking about it today. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.